0: Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am one of your co hosts, Evan Ratliff. We are off this week for the holiday. Actually, the holiday was last week, but we tape a week ahead. So, technically, we were off last week for the holiday. In any case, because of that, we have an older interview for you the 2021 conversation I had with Mary Roach. She is the author of books like Stiff and Bonk and Packing for Mars. Her book that was out at the time was called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. I had a lot of fun talking to her, and we thought that everyone could use something a little lighter at the moment. So here it is from 2021, myself and Mary Roach. Mary, thank you for coming on the podcast.
2: Delighted to be here.
1: First of all, I've, I came across... Uh, some fun emails between the two of us when I was uh, the letters page editor. There was such a thing like I was the research editor, but I was the letters page editor at Wired magazine and you had you were writing stories for Wired at the time. I was asking you for letters for a story that you had written. You know, Had anyone written to you that we could use? Uh, it was a story about sort of like the industry of making cute things in Japan. Yes. I think it was called Cute Ink. Kawaii. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> yeah. Tamagotchi and all that. And uh, and you sort of said, well, I don't think I got anything good. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a sort of like urgent sounding email from you saying, I don't know if it's too late to get this one in, but I heard from a woman who has a Hello Kitty vibrator. <sighs>
2: I have no memory of this. Oh, my God. Do you think that was something Sanrio put out? Or do you think that she kind of jerry-rigged it and put the logo on herself? Was it really a... Wow.
1: Your assessment in the email was that it was a knockoff. It was a, it was off-brand.
2: It was off-brand. It had to be off-brand. Yeah. I mean, I've been to Sanrio, and they're not very freewheeling. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I completely forgot about that.
1: But it just... It was so fun to find that because, I mean, it was from like 1999, I think, but I sort of, to sort of think, oh, have we ever exchanged emails? And then to find this, to me, what, like a perfectly Mary Roach email that was like (laughs) funny about this funny thing that you had written about. Um, But I realized in, in looking back that uh, you reference in Fuzz that you worked at a zoo. Uh, It's relevant uh, to the book that you had worked at a zoo. And I was kind of looking at your background and I don't really know, what led you from sort of working at the zoo up until the point where we exchanged those emails where you were you know, writing for magazines, right. all sorts of magazines, including Wired. So first, I'm curious, I wanted to start by asking you, how and why did you get the job at the zoo?
2: I got the job at the zoo, well, I graduated in the midst of a recession with a liberal arts degree. So uh, I wasn't finding any, well, I was applying for jobs in in radio and TV with no training or internships and I was getting nowhere. And then I I kind of thought about writing and I decided I would volunteer uh, my services. So it was actually the San Francisco Zoological Society, which is a nonprofit that supports the zoo in its own dysfunctional way. And um, uh, so I was I wrote to them and said, I'd like to volunteer for the public affairs office. And it turns out they had a half-time job open. So I got hired as the public affairs assistant. And that's as high as I ever rose in the world of public affairs <laughs> and public relations. Because I was not good at my job. I would, um, like someone from the press would call with some horrible rumor they'd heard. And the one that sticks in my mind is that, one of the cheetahs was, and I think this is how it was put, sucked dry by ticks. And I, instead of denying it, instead of doing damage control, I said to the reporter, wow, like how many ticks would that take? How much, let's figure this out. How much blood is in a cheetah and how many, how much blood does a tick take in the average bite? And my boss was sitting and we shared a tiny cubicle space uh, and she just looked at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> just tell him it isn't true. <laughs> like, Get off the phone. Deny the rumor. What is wrong with you? So um, I'm not good at spin. I'm not good at damage control. I think I create damage. I create damage. is what, That's what I did at that job.
1: You were writing their story for them, basically.
2: I was. I was. And making it more damaging for the zoo. <laughs> so. I, and actually, I wasn't fired. Although it sounds like I should have been, um, the job went to full time, and I didn't want the full time job because I had started freelance writing for the San Francisco Examiner Sunday magazine, which is was called Image, and that was what much more fun. These were reported pieces. I mean, you know, not not important pieces, not particularly great pieces, but they were fun, and I started there. And then, and then an editor from that magazine went on to this magazine, Hippocrates, which was a really good, really smart magazine about health and medicine. And I wrote for them as a contributing editor for about 15 years. And, um, that's really how my career sort of as a writer gelled, I think that magazine
1: from the beginning, were you interested in writing about science? Because I've read uh, in other places where you said you didn't take a single science class uh, when you were in college.
2: Uh, that's true. Actually, I took astronomy because it was a gut, and everybody got an A. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I can still name the moons of Jupiter. But I, I, I did that recently. I was showing off: Io, Europa, <laughs> Ganymede, Callisto. And somebody said, "That's that's like." There's so many more now. <laughs> Like that isn't impressive anymore at all, but I didn't take science. No, I was under the impression that science was a grind and really boring and something to be avoided at all costs. Um, I had this sense that, oh, I want to do something creative, not realizing that science is, is actually really very creative. I mean, engineering, when you think about, you know, problem solving and thinking outside the box and creating solutions, it's very, it's very creative, but I've subscribed to that typical oh I want to do something you know I want to be creative I want to I thought for a while that maybe I want to be like a you know something in the arts I had no if you've ever seen me try to draw even like a horse (laughs) like (laughs) um it's I look back on that and it's just pathetic that I thought maybe you know I could be an illustrator or something I just I don't know I think I came out of School with a sense of like, oh, I went to Wesley and I'm special. Someone will hire me. I can do anything, which maybe is useful, but um, embarrassing when I look back on it. Really embarrassing.
1: <laughs> well, you do need that kind of confidence, I think, when you're first, especially if you're going to freelance. Uh, yeah. In the world of writing. So, how did you? How did you first sort of get those gigs, like San Francisco Examiner? Were you just cold pitching them?
2: Um, the first thing I did was uh, it was before the Examiner magazine. There was a, there's a section called Sunday punch and it, it was uh, essays and humor pieces that people would just, you just submit, you know, you can't really pitch a humor piece. I'm going to be really funny about, you know, <laughs> you, you just have to write it obviously. So I wrote one, it was called how to impress the IRS. And it was full of like things like get a rubber stamp made of your social security number and just stamp it everywhere. Cause they seem to want that on every page and you know enclose a packet of seeds with your just so dumb thing and that was published leading me to think oh freelance writing it seems pretty easy i'll just write things and submit them and someone will run them and again really looking back they're not very funny they're i think the bar was pretty damn low at the sunday punch <laughs> <laughs> so i did that for a while and then i and i then i just cold pitched the sunday magazine about They had a section called Diversions, which was, they were maybe 800 words long, and they were things to do in the Bay Area. And I pitched this piece to, I didn't know the editor. Uh, I pitched a piece about going around and looking at the, they're not gargoyles, but there's all kinds of animals I carved into the buildings of the financial district in San Francisco. So I pitched it as kind of a kind of like a bird watching piece in the financial district, but you're actually looking at all the animals up on in all the carvings. And for some inexplicable reason, Karin Evans, the editor took that piece. And then I, the second piece, I think I went out with the pothole patrol and um that was a lot of fun, but that, but so just started writing pieces for that magazine. And then, and then, then the editor from there Peggy Northrop went to Hippocrates and that's when I started doing longer reported forms, things that you could actually call a feature. So I just was following along. I did that a lot. I kind of just grabbed hold of someone's coattails. You know, I think Alex heard, I think I followed Alex heard from the New York times to wired to outside, just like, take me with you. <laughs> Hello. Take me along.
1: But did you feel I'm very interested in before you wrote stiff, did you feel like you were sort of going places in the writing world and you'd kind of gotten your feet in magazines and it was all kind of going in some direction at that time?
2: Uh, Here's what happened. I wrote for magazines for about 15 years. Never the ones that, you know, the Atlantic Harpers or the New Yorker. Those always felt out of reach. And also, I think my style wasn't very well suited. And I'm not, I'm not a strong enough reporter for those. Anyway, that was how I felt. But I really enjoyed the magazines I was working for. They had good budgets. I did a lot of travel. i I was like, this is, I could do this forever. I'm so happy. I wasn't plagued by this notion that I should, I should be writing books. Um, that didn't really, I mean, I, I kind of thought, well, yeah, that would be cool. I, you know, you're, you're, that is sort of the next level. And I, probably should want to do that i think what happened is uh there was a time when it was right around the time when salon.com the online magazine remember that it's an online magazine and david talbot who founded it uh, used to be at image where i started out so i wrote to him and said i want to write for you and do a column for you and he said sure you know, it's the internet. It's like, yes, feed me content. So, and around that time, as, Salon, as, as salon.com was taking off, the budgets were shrinking at magazines. It just felt like the end of an era. You know, it was a, it was a good run. It was amazing. It was really fun. And then the the per word rates were going down. It was harder to get a contributing editorship. Uh, just felt like things were moving in another direction and uh, not necessarily a well-paying direction. Although salon did initially pay me surprisingly well, especially compared to what I think you get now writing for websites. But uh, what happened, uh, an agent, the agent that I still have, contacted me about a couple of salon, I think he'd seen a couple salon columns, and just said, do you ever think about, and he didn't say a book, he said a, a book length, for, I don't know, he had a word for it that wasn't books. <laughs> I, I, I didn't actually know quite what he meant at first. And then I realized he was studying about books and I I was kind of, ah, yeah, maybe so. I don't know what I, you know, I said, I don't know how I, I can't, you know, I've never written more than 5,000 words or 6,000 words. I can't even imagine 90,000 words. And he said, well, you know, just think about it. And he, and he told me to take a look at which columns had the highest hit rates. And there were a couple that had to do with cadaver research that had high hit rates. And he, my future agent said, well, Why don't you think about that as a book? And I remember saying or thinking anyway, boy, that is a really terrible idea for a book. (laughs) Who the fuck goes into a bookstore, looks at all the new nonfiction books and goes, oh, yeah, this one here, this one about the cadavers. I think that's what I'm going to read next. I mean, I just it just seemed like a bad idea. But I went ahead anyway, because what do I know? And he sold it. And then that was that. That's how I came to writing books.
1: It's amazing that you didn't think it was a good idea. I mean, I feel like when I think about a table full of books, like that cover, like the toe tag body is an iconic narrative nonfiction cover for me.
2: Oh, yeah. I fought against that cover. Really? I fought against it. Yes. (laughs) I said two, I had two objections. Um, One was that it was derivative of six feet under, which it was a little. It looked that way. And I also knew that research cadavers don't have toe tags. I even didn't like the title because nobody who works with cadavers who's a you know medical, biomedical type of person uses the word stiff. It's a very, you know, cops in the morgue. So I felt like the title and the cover and the toe tag, anyway, it was like never listen to authors about <laughs> <laughs> titles and covers. Um, fortunately, they talked me out of that. I mean, they didn't ignore me. My publisher's always pretty good about listening to me and behind my back, rolling their eyes. <laughs> Yeah, it's good that they didn't listen to me. And that had it that book had an earlier cover before, which was very weird, which was changed at the last possible second. It was a shaved head guy lying apparently dead face down with a typewriter here in front of his head and he's typing kind of spastically like a dead person might type. And then coming out of the typewriter it says stiff. And, you know, there's the title. So it kinda of made it look like I'm like Mary Roach is a dead <laughs> bald man typing it was was, and it was very gray and it was very I just thought it was sort of funny so I didn't care but then um, someone at borders actually said we like this book and we will put it in the original voices program but not with this terrible cover so at the last possible second my publisher went in and changed the cover dealt with my complaints and then put the thing out
1: remember what your your sort of expectations were when the book came out
2: oh yes while I was working on the book even I would wake up at night thinking no one no one's gonna buy this no one's gonna buy this book read this book like this book my publisher has spent this money that they're never gonna earn back I'll never be able to write another book I just thought um, I had very, very, very low expectations. You know, I, I was at a party during, I think, toward the end of phases of writing the book. And this woman, who I don't know that well, I, she said, what are you working on? And I told her about Stiff and what it was about. And she, she said, in this really condescending voice, let me ask you something. Who's going to buy this book? <laughs> and, wow. and on the one hand, I was like, fuck you, Bonnie Fluke. But then, on the other hand, it was like, I I felt the same way. I just, I, I who is going to buy this book? I don't know. I, I, but I think for nonfiction, you can almost feel that way about almost anything that's not really topical and really, or, you know, a celebrity biography. You know, anytime you pluck some kind of obscure topic out of the ether and decide to write, you know, 250 pages, 300 pages on it, you do kind of wonder who who's going to be the person who decides to Put all this time into reading this, and I worried also that the tone was inappropriate for the material; that people might be offended. Um, I, I don't know. I, no one read that book until my editor. Nobody, not my husband. No, no one read that book. So, and that, of course, amps up the anxiety.
1: And and when it did take off, did that make you sort of then reevaluate and say? okay, let me let me figure out what I did that did cause people to like it? Or did you try to not think about it and just move on to the next one?
2: I think I realized that... Well, what happened with... That book came out in April, and it didn't make the New York Times bestseller list until August. And they had to do the book tour in two chunks because so few people would book me because I wasn't an unknown and the book wasn't... It was doing okay, but it wasn't you know, hitting any lists. So they... Booked it in two sort of chunks, and I was in Colorado. And my agent called and, and said, in his characteristic kind of deadpan, Yeah, so you made the list. And I honestly didn't know what list he, he meant. I was like, You, you were stressed? <laughs> <laughs> well, what list? So, and I think that the, the fact that it took from April to August, there was a word of mouth situation with that book. I just think, I think the combination of the subject matter and my tone and my, I guess, my personality in writing it, I think that was a surprising combination. And in fact, the thing that I had worried about, that it might be offensive or inappropriate, uh, was the thing that made people talk about it and the reason that it did well. So I kind of relaxed about my tone. And also, you know, I just figure I'm just going to do what I think is best. And then I've got an editor. So if I cross a line, she can take it out. And she did, and and I assumed that that would be the case with stiff that she would just cross out lines, paragraphs, whole chapters that she thought were offensive or inappropriate. But she didn't dial it back much, and and I think that was frightening. But after the first book, I I kind of saw that that was that what I was doing was okay, which is good because I don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> Sometimes I think, I think, oh, I for my next book, I'm gonna do some sort of deep dive, you know, where it's one long narrative all the way through, and it's gonna be. I remember when Sea Biscuit came out. For some reason, I was thinking, why don't I do something like Sea C- C- Biscuit? <laughs> that was just hilarious to say the word Sea Biscuit. Also, because there's we used to get our kegs when I lived in a big flat at Sea Biscuit Liquors. Anyway, I remember thinking. I should be doing that kind of thing where it's like a, you know, really deeply reported one story, you know, and I would think about it a lot and then just go, I'm just, I don't have those goggles. I don't have, I don't see the world. I mean, I probably step on those stories all the time. I trip over them and I don't see them for what they are. I'm just not able to do that for whatever reason. But I I think about it sometimes.
1: Just looking back over the books, you know, it can feel to the reader like, you just kind of happily wander the world following your curiosity and then like a big you grab one big idea and then you grab the next big idea but i'm always interested in when you when you're trying to come up with the next idea for the next book do you feel sort of like under pressure to do it or you sort of have a have a range of options you're choosing from and you're exploring each one a little
2: bit oh, oh god wouldn't i I'd love to be one of those people with the the to-do list of like 10 great book ideas i know this this guy, he, he had, he had this list, a hundred book ideas, a hundred, a hundred, he had a hundred book ideas. I think I mean, a lot of them were just, you know, noodling kind of off the top of his head, but I, I don't have one. I don't have one. And it can take me almost a year to settle on something. And there's a lot of anxiety that goes into that and dead ends. And, and I'll report all I'll, I've spent a couple of months reporting things that went nowhere and people, people <laughs> I've, for the past month, I've been talking about fuzz and, invariably for radio or television, they say, you know, Oh, what inspired the story? And they want a soundbite. And I know they want a short answer and I don't have an origin story. I just, I, I gave some thought to just making up an origin story, but I don't like I'm, I'm committed to the truth. I wanted to say, you know, I was, I was attacked by Wolverines in New Hampshire <laughs> as a child. <laughs> and I couldn't do it. I, and I, so I have to, I, I go, well, yeah, well I started, I was kind of interested in this, forensics lab up in Ashland, Oregon, the National Wildlife Forensics Laboratory. And this, and basically, it was this woman, Bonnie Yates, who'd written a paper and a law enforcement guide on how to detect real versus counterfeit tiger penis. And, and, and I got... Anyway, the way I come up with book topics is I, I have a couple of appealing chunks. And then I think, what book would you put around those chunks? And I, I've told this story before. And I think people who... I think a lot of people don't know what ad I'm referring to, but I'm going to tell you anyway, because it's how I work. Okay, there's this ad for Kohler. You know, they make plumbing fixtures, bathroom fixtures. Sure, yeah. Okay, so there's the, there used to be this ad on television where this really pretentious man walks into an architect's office, and he's carrying a faucet, a Kohler faucet, and he plunks it down on the desk, and he says to the architect, build a house around this. It's like, what an asshole. Anyway, but I end up, like, with for Packing for Mars, my faucet, my Kohler faucet was, well, I had two faucets. I had reported a story for Vogue magazine because, incredibly, given what I wear, I was a contributing editor at Vogue for a while. And um, I had done a piece on bone loss, and I was bored with the topic, so I decided to call some astronauts. I called this guy, William Thornton, who is also a, met- a physician. We went off topic because so many things that astronauts know about are more interesting than bone loss. And he told me about this video training toilet that they have at Johnson Space Center, which is a toilet with a video camera facing up in a closed circuit TV mounted right on the wall there. So you can see the view of your asshole as you're <laughs> sitting down. Cause it's like teaching you how to dock with the toilet because it's not that easy. It's a small hole and you're not really sitting. You're just kind of hovering <laughs> and and I remember thinking, there's no way I can work this into a Vogue story, is there? There's just, it's off topic, and it's Vogue. Anna Wintour does not share my sensibility at all. And so I just stashed it in the back of my brain, and it sat there. And then later, I heard about the bed rest facility, which is where NASA pays people to lie in bed for three or four months without getting out, even to go to the bathroom. They have to use a bedpan. And they're studying bone loss, muscle wasting, et cetera. And I was like, the bed rest facility—that is a really surreal place. So then I, had, so then I've got these two things, and that, I'm like, okay, what book do you build around that? And that's how packing for Mars happened. I never thought I would like to write a book about our efforts to put man into space. You know, I never—I was not particularly interested in space. I—I I didn't even see the moon landing. I was—I was ten years old, and I didn't even watch the moon landing. I was like out playing with the neighbors, and I don't know. I just so I'm so I'm. I never have a topic. I just start with a couple of irresistible things and, and build it out from there.
1: What were the Kohler faucets for for Fuzz?
2: <laughs> um, well, I thought they were the tiger penis counterfeiting because I envisioned a place in Asia, like a dimly lit room where, because they use horse and cow penis, and they carve barbs into it to make it look like a f- cat penis um the tiger penis is very small horse cow are much bigger but they have the characteristic barbs so people have to doctor them up and so i was picturing just like that was a faucet i and it was like i i want to go with some investigator on a sting like a break-in where they bust in and all these people like abandon their work benches and leave behind the penis that they were working on <laughs> and uh, so I tried to set that up and the guy, they did find the guy who knows about this and knows where, you know, which markets these things were sold in, but he was about to retire. So, you know, my faucet got turned off there. Uh, so there's that one. And, and, and also it, I it, it didn't, I mean, I, this, it morphed into, you know, instead of wildlife as victim, wildlife as perpetrator. So it kind of turned it inside out, but the faucets were, um, the tiger penis and the, um, also Bonnie Yates had assembled a hair library like a massive collection of all these hairs of endangered species and she was going on about like you know animals have seven different types of hair there's guard hairs undercoat hairs regular hairs face hairs and so you had to be an expert in all these different hairs just honestly the two words together hair and library did it for me so i those were the faucets but i didn't know what the plumbing system was i didn't know what the pipes were that would connect it it was a terrible metaphor and i'm not gonna let it go no
1: yeah, let's keep going
2: <laughs> so yeah and then i you know i uh, there was a there was a faucet in the form of i heard that before this uh, agricultural this was over in the realm of agricultural crime but i was like okay nature it's somehow tied in with nature uh, i heard about um this crime that is actually really called Grand Theft Avocado, which is before the Super Bowl because there's so, so much guacamole is made. For the Super Bowl, people go in and steal huge, just truckloads of avocados from farms. And I loved that. And I wanted to go out on a sting where they were going to catch these bastards <laughs> right before the Super Bowl. But I was you know dealing with the sheriff's department. No one returned my calls. They didn't sort of share my enthusiasm. Also, for any kind of wildlife crime. I could not be present on an investigation legally. So that's a dead end for me because I I like to be there. I like to report in person and be able to have those wonderful scenes and characters and dialogue. And, and I couldn't do that. So that's when I kind of turned it around. And the other faucet for the actual book was, uh, this book, The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals, which was written in 1906 and is a very bizarre book that chronicles some very bizarre practices in the 15, 16, and 1700s. Animals put on trial, held in prison, executed for their crimes. That kind of made the whole idea of animals as quote unquote criminals kind of gel in my head. But of long, see, see now. If you were a if you were a TV reporter and you said, "What inspired this book?" How long did I just talk about that? Fifteen minutes. You could just see them going, like, "Holy crap! Shut her up!"
1: That's all the time we have. <laughs>
2: That's all the time. Yeah, exactly. Plus, I often interrupt myself, and because I can't, I'm, I get so excited about telling. I, I know how to tell the you know the difference between tiger penis real and fake, and I go off on this tangent, and and the fact that the people who sell it. In Chinatown, they're selling deer, cow, and horse, and they know that and they sell it as lesser tiger penis, and everyone knows, but they don't care. It does this so I go off on that tangent too, and it has nothing to do with my book. It's not even in the book, but I can't seem to help myself.
1: (laughs) You mentioned, you know, the sheriff's department didn't share your enthusiasm. Yeah. And I'm interested in when you you get a lot of time with people you know, the people that end up in the book, like the forensics investigators for, you know, bear maulings and cougar maulings, and then, uh, you know, elephant attacks in India. What is your approach to them? And how do you sort of get them to share your enthusiasm when they do?
2: Usually, what I do is, if someone's hesitant, or they say no, I try to kind of break down what it is that is making them uncomfortable. Like I may say, we can do a fact check, which doesn't mean I'm going to show them the whole chapter, but I'll do a fact check of the facts. If they're still hesitant, I say, you know, you can check, I'll read you your quotes. Uh, so you don't have to worry that I'm going to misquote you. So just when people, when people say no, I think they're not, they don't really mean no. They just mean, I don't, I'm not sure. And, and it's my job to kind of break that down and see what, why they're uncomfortable and try to make them more comfortable. I don't ever show somebody the chapter that they're in, but I will read a chapter to somebody. Mm. I just find if you read it to them, if you give it to them, they'll read it five times and want to change every word for random reasons. If you read it to them, it feels like a finished thing and they're just signing off and they're pretty good about it. Um, So it's rare that I have to offer that kind of assurance. Usually it's just, um, I think it's my enthusiasm and my excitement about it because i if i'm not enthusiastic or excited about what they do and the trip that i want to take and uh the time that i want to spend with them if i'm not enthusiastic about it you know i shouldn't even be doing it so so and i think that enthusiasm you know it it reads as i really find what you do fascinating and important and i want to share it with people so i I think that people respond to enthusiasm Mm -hmm. it's not fake enthusiasm but you know i send emails i'm I usually give it three tries. I find that people don't like to say no, and if you make them do it three times, they'll um, they'll often change their mind. <laughs> I just wear them down to a stub. <laughs> uh, it's usually not a problem. It's usually the problem is usually that they're they're not going to be doing. They, they finished this project that they were working on that sounded so interesting, and they don't have anything coming up, so mm-hmm. it, they're suddenly not somebody that I am pursuing so avidly.
1: And do you feel confident that you can always, you can sort of always find a scene? I noticed when, for Fuzz, when you, for instance, you went to India and you had, you know, you had one contact that you spent all the time with, but then you had another one where you said, uh, basically you had never been able to arrange an appointment with this person, but figured if you showed up, they would talk to you. And they did in this kind of funny, uh, funny way. And is your assumption, like, I'll just, if I get a trip somewhere and there's someone to talk to I can make something out of it? Or do you have trips that go, you go and come back and just nothing, there's nothing there?
2: For a book, I've never gone and come back without anything because, um, well, I'll give you an example from Packing for Mars. NASA was doing a cadaver sort of crash test test. They, were, they uh, had to do with ca- uh, space capsules crashing down in an off-nominal, as they say, way, like sideways, the way that they're not supposed to. And what would happen to the occupant with the hard parts of the spacesuit smash into their shoulder and shatter their shoulder? They just didn't know. And a crash test dummy wouldn't give them that information because that's designed for head-on or sideways, not like space capsule hitting the ocean. So they had to do some cadaver work. And because stiff was a popular book and my readers are like, What are you gonna do stiff too? It's like well I, I gotta have this chapter. But NASA was very uncomfortable with it. NASA's just not comfortable with death at all. Full stop. And they kept saying, oh, mm, yeah, the people at Constellation are are saying no. And I'm like, no they're not. I talked to them. They want to do it. This is the public affairs office kept saying these things. And they said, oh no, it's you know, it's the researcher at OSU as the Equipment. He doesn't want to do it. I said, "Oh, I know him from Stiff. He's delighted to do it." And then finally, the woman goes, "Mary, it's not any one thing. It's just everything. You'll have to accept that the answer is no." Which of course made me be like, "I'm gonna fucking get there." So I called the researcher at Ohio State, and he's he said, "Mary, just show up. Just show up." So I I did fly there the day of the. Test and showed up, and the researchers were there, and they're like, "Oh, hi, what's your name? Who are you?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm Mary Roach. And I'm an author." And and they're like, "Mary Roach," and they run down the stairs to the this other office. They stop where the cadaver is being wired up for the test, and they tell the grad students, "Don't speak to her." And they run. It was amazing. Like I knew that this, if you know, it's like NASA. You can have this scene go either way. It's up to you because this scene will be in the book. And I think that the public affairs woman kind of knew this because when they called her and said, Mary Roach is here, she said, Lynette Madison was her name. She goes, Mary Roach is there. Oh, just talk to her. So, uh, and that happened with the Japanese space agency as well. Uh, they said yes initially to a Uh, It was a psychological test in a space capsule simulator where they gave people all kinds of weird challenges to see, and they were being observed by psychiatrists. And they said, yeah, you can be there. And then like four days before, the public affairs woman wrote and said, oh, I know we said this. I'm so sorry, you can't be there. So I said, well, I have a ticket and it's non-refundable. So I'm, I'm coming and I'm hoping that you can set up a meeting with whoever it is that's uncomfortable and we'll find a way to make this more comfortable for everybody. So I was prepared to sit in a hotel room at Scuba Science City, um, just harassing the public affairs woman until she set up a meeting, which she finally did. So um, I have gone places without an interview set up. Uh, and it, it is harder to, it. Well, it's hard to say no three times. It's very, very hard to say no to someone who's flown halfway around the world <laughs> and is outside your office. So I, I have resorted to that, sometimes I'm not proud of it. <laughs> no, you should
1: be proud of it. it.
2: Had to be done.
1: Your 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 story from NASA makes me think. I would read a compendium of just your interactions with uh, with PR <laughs> people over the years for these books. Because I was I flagged one in Fuzz where you're writing about you know cars' interaction with wildlife and accidents, and then you you talk about self-driving cars and the issues that yeah. could arise and then you write something like uh I tried to contact Google's public relations Google Waymo their self-driving cars public relations person but she refused to have relations with me.
2: <laughs> yeah, she was she was so bad and I kept I, I just cuz it was fun for me I kept emailing her and after like the fifth one I said are you okay? <laughs> I'm worried that you're ill. I hope you're okay. <laughs> And the, I mean, the, when you first call Google the the self driving car, people they're like, "Let's get you down here and drive you around." It's like NASA would be like, "Let's get you here to ride the rover." With Waymo people are like, "Let's get you down here, like you're gonna get in this vehicle and just be blown over by the fabulousness of what they've done and forget all about what what it is that you even wanted to know." You're just kind of like, "Okay, I don't want to ride the rover. <laughs> I don't want to. Stop it." <laughs> <laughs> but I do love those. I remember for in gulp uh this book was written some time ago when fecal microbiome transplants as they're now called FMTs were just starting out and I went when one was being done they were gathering the material and <laughs> processing it and they used an Oster blender and so I cuz it was a really good blender so I contacted the Oster communications office and I'm like I just wanted you know wondered how you felt about being the blender of choice for fecal transplants. (laughs) And the woman, you know, she wrote back in this, thank you for reaching out (laughs) after talking to our product communications department or whatever department. We've decided, she didn't say not to comment, but it was just a classic corporate communications bullshit reply, which I included in a footnote. And they should own that. Don't you think the Oster people own it, people? (laughs) Well,
1: this is... This is your attitude for being the PR person from the zoo who just believes that the PR person should just answer your question the way you want it answered.
2: Exactly. Exactly. That's how I did it. (laughs) I think it's the right way. Everybody else seems to have it wrong.
1: (laughs) One of the things that I love about your writing is that you're just sort of this incredible companion for the reader to go along with like we're just always along with you and you're having little adventures and learning about things and we're learning about things and i'm interested in the interplay between that and what it would actually be like to go along with you because there's a kind of inverse relationship sometimes where if you have a bad experience i as a reader have a have a great experience yes like i really enjoy reading you write funny about something that's terrible that happened
2: yeah In some sense, the the more awkward, the worse things go, the least expected, most embarrassing or disgusting, although they're not necessarily fun to live through, I know in that moment they'll be really fun to write up and they'll be fun for readers to read. So I'm simultaneously going like, oh, fuck, and yes. (laughs) Like the NASA, you know, those guys literally running down the steps and into this other little side room to call public affairs. I'm like, at this point, I don't care if I get to see the cadaver test because you just handed me a really fun scene. <laughs> I mean, it did, I didn't put that in because it, you know, they relented and things went the other way. Um, but you know, the, the I'm often spending a couple days to a couple weeks, sometimes, in a place with people, and 90% of that is, you know, not interesting, not getting. You know, I'm writing up a just a tiny percentage uh you know it may be a moment it may be two minutes out of a week you know that ends up as a scene so to have someone tag along I, I, it would it would be so so dull for them because <laughs> it's the, the you know all the downtime between those magical moments Uh, if you have to have that and you know and sometimes people say like oh you should you know you should be shooting video while you're there and then we could do a tv project and and i'm like if i've got to be worried about lighting sound what the scene looks like i mean that the the none of the spontaneity will be there yeah uh, people will feel uncomfortable they'll feel like they're on camera which they are or they're being we've got to get to a quieter spot i mean this is why I've, i've not done any of that, because I, I feel like it, it'll, it'll spook the moment.
1: And do, how do you start to know when you're getting close to being finished?
2: Um, it's largely intuitive. Um, I may go the first six months of a book project not having a clear sense of what the book is even about. When I finally realize, okay, that's what this book is about and I know what the parameters are. So that means this chapter doesn't really fit. And or um in reporting these chapters, somebody told me about something else going on and I know that I know that I want that. It has everything to do with how interesting and how much of a how fun is the narrative for this material. So it's it's almost like, you know, the greatest hits. So there there'll be you know, things I'm considering that, you know, I, I thought would be interesting, but turn out not to make the cut. And, you know, and sometimes it's the, something that i had done the setup on, they'd end up not doing it. I was going to, I wanted to, so I want to be trained as an egg addler, because I wanted to do this chapter on Canada geese. And what's interesting about egg addling, which just means shaking the egg, so the embryo isn't viable. And there was all this work done on how to tell from without breaking the egg, how far along is it? It's basically a a, a goose abortion chapter because there's, you know, if it floats, that means there's more egg than goose. And it's uh, so small that it's considered, you know, first term. And it's tricky because you have to time it right. If you do it too early, the geese will just lay another clutch. So you have to, it's a very complicated Thing and it's it's and it's lovely because it's it's humane. It's you know, rather than you know rounding up the geese in the middle of the night and putting them in a CO2 box and killing them. They're trying to figure out. I mean, there's people who are really working hard to uh, not kill the Canada geese and even not to kill Canada geese in the egg. But I couldn't. Nobody's doing egg addling anymore. It's expensive to train people. It's hard to time it right. It's just too much work. And there's other things that they're doing now, but. So I was like, you know, if I can't become an, if I and also the other thing about egg addling is you're out there and you're simultaneously with your bucket floating your eggs. And then you have geese that are, and they're very aggressive. They're charging at you and they tell you to bring an umbrella and you open the umbrella kind of like the Batman. What was it? The the penguin. Yeah. You had this, so you're like opening your umbrella at these attacking geese while you're floating. And the geese are like, what the fuck are you doing with my eggs in the bucket? (laughs) And so that appealed to me very much. And then when I found that I couldn't. I couldn't find anybody and I spent a lot of time contacting municipalities that had geese problems that had done addling in the past and they're like, no, we just move the nests or we do, there's there's other things they're doing. So I just, I just abandoned the goose chapter except for the goose shit footnote, which had to be. (laughs) had to be in there
1: you might also i feel like it's emblematic of your books that you you may literally be the only person who's ever with a disappointed voice said they're just not doing the addling anymore they're not doing egg addling (laughs) i can't even get a gig doing egg addling
2: you have no idea how frustrated i was i really was i just had this scene and i wanted to make it happen uh so i yeah it's just very disappointing when that doesn't work out
1: I want, I want to talk about uh, I want to talk about writing for just a second. It's so hard to write funny. Is this a thing that you feel like comes naturally that you write the way you speak or is this something that you hone in the direction of funny very meticulously?
2: Um I find that the key to it for me is in the reporting. I know that I have to have material that will lend itself to a humorous write up. The magic for me is in recognizing the potential of those scenes. And sometimes I overestimate, I'm overoptimistic. I think that they'll be magic and in fact they're pretty dull. I once pitched a story on the ergonomics of airplane seats because they were doing some studies of that. And I thought, oh my God, it's an airplane seat ergonomics lab. How cool is that? And then I go there and it's just 50 people sitting in airplane seats for seven hours. It's not very dynamic. Nobody was talking. I mean, the tedium of it was mildly interesting, but that's one where I, you know, I pitched it and I thought, what what was I thinking? Uh, But but typically I have a pretty good eye, whatever, for scenes that will be not necessarily funny, but there's a sort of something kind of surreal about the juxtaposition of science and whatever it is, like for gulp. The saliva woman, you know, this, this, and she turned out to be this beautiful Italian woman, fashionable, well-dressed, and she studies spit and she's not just studies it. She's so in love with it and so enthusiastic about saliva. And that day, I mean, that was just, I was just so happy to spend that day with the spit lady because it, uh, I loved her. I loved her passion for saliva. I became a passionate advocate for saliva. I, you know, don't get me started on saliva. <laughs> but that kind of combination of science plus some weird little slice of the world that we just never really thought about somebody dedicating their life to, um, you, you do it, you get a sense that that may be promising. And then once I have that pile of stuff, I, I, it's, it's easy to make it amusing. It's not so much, I mean, it's, I think you'd be hard pressed to, I mean, they're not like lines, funny lines that much every now and then. I mean, they're often someone else's line, not mine. Uh, so it's, it's, I don't think, you know, if I had to work for a late night show or something, I'd be, they'd be, I'd be fired on the second day. I don't, I don't come up with funny lines that, like that. So the humor is, is very much based on the, the situation, the place that I go and the things that happen. And, and without that, I'm, I'm just flat.
1: I find there's a certain informality in your style. That's partly there's a meta element. It's sort of like I'm writing a book. I'm making metaphors here for you. Like I'm do I'm doing I'm trying to do this for you. There was a funny line in in fuzz about you were comparing a tree like the tree to a human body. Yeah, and then at some point you just say the widest part of the tree is called the bud, and that is where the my metaphors come to an end or something like that.
2: Yeah, that's about as far as I can take you with that metaphor. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I do I do like to kind of bring people into the process sometimes I think it I think it's kind of fun I, I I there's there's points where I've done that and I think I don't know is this too cute I don't know my editor will take it out if it's I I just trust her for some reason to if I've overstepped my bounds so so I just throw this stuff in there
1: are you still just sort of writing for your editor now? I mean, now you have a readership over these books who, you know, they're going to run out and buy your new book and they may have certain expectations of the things that they want in the book. Are those things in your head? What, you know, what a Mary Roach reader wants?
2: Well, yes, only because I just picture all of my readers as me. It's like the John Malkovich (laughs) movie where he looks around the restaurant and everybody, including the women, they're all John Malkovich. So I I think that I just picture them as me. I, I, I don't know, because if you... Well, Twitter skews young anyway, so I know I have a lot of young readers, but I don't think it's... I don't know what the demographic is. I think it's all over the map. So I don't have... I can't really have an image of who that person is, other than they're kind of like me. <laughs> so um, that's who I'm... That's definitely who I'm writing for. And, I, and, and interestingly, I, I wouldn't put my editor in that category. I mean, she's not somebody my editor is a she's published 3 volumes of poetry her poetry is in the new yorker she's written 4 novels she's a beautiful she teaches literature or, or writing at columbia she's passionate about fiction she's she's not someone who would ever pick up <laughs> one of my books and yet she's a she's a wonderful i mean she's just a good editor she could edit anything because she's because she's a good editor she could edit anything but she's not someone who I would imagine being like, oh, I love Mary Roach's books. So it's it's interesting that she's the first person and the only person who reads it before it goes out.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's if everyone else is you, it's good to have one person that's not you.
2: <laughs> exactly, exactly. She's the one, like, every now and then, I do cross a line. I know you may find this hard to believe. And she's the one who goes in and just puts a diagonal line across that paragraph and writes no in the margin <laughs> not like any reason why just no like it like she like i don't even need to explain to you why this is not going to be in the book mary just no and i and initially i'm like hey i love that part wait no and then, then by the next day i'm like yeah she's right she's right
1: <laughs> and underlying i think a lot of your books is an idea that you're writing about things that people don't usually talk about. And I I am interested in if there's a philosophy that underlies that, that that's a sort of belief of yours. And that's partly what drives you to in certain directions in your reporting, or that's just what's more fun.
2: Uh, It is what's more fun. And also it started with stiff partly because when I was thinking about books at the behest of this agent, he said, just think about, you know, books, book topics. And it seemed to me that, Everything you could think of someone had written a book about, and cadaver research, cadavers in general, was something that nobody had written about. so i i I was it was kind of like, oh I'll do that. i'll I got that one. I'll do that one. I don't mind. I don't have any sense of this is gross or uh, it didn't It just seemed interesting to me. and it's and in these realms of the taboo, there's a tremendous amount of material that is really interesting, but the people have stayed away from. And so it felt to me like this is some interesting material that's untouched. You know, it's kind of, I'm kind of a bottom feeder. It's down there on the bottom where people don't want to go. But if that's what it takes to find interesting new material, I'm fine with it. I don't care. I'm not easily grossed out. I don't feel that there's any reason why we shouldn't look at this. And over time, I started to feel that particularly with bonk, well, both bonk and stiff, uh, I, I felt that the taboo was Preventing people from having conversations that it would be healthy to have. Mm. Um, Whether it was, you know, what should I do with my remains when I die? Uh, Not making that clear. And the family having to second guess. And, And also people not donating their organs because they don't understand what that means. And they're afraid of the unknown. And with Bonk, just, you know, the people that brought sexual physiology into the laboratory and sort of studied how these bits and pieces work and what's happening when, when people, uh, when they don't work and people have unsatisfactory sex lives, um, that that was a quite heroic thing to do. And that when we turn away from things, we don't, we do ourselves a disservice. Even the fact I had a footnote in, I don't even know which book, but it had to do with those ribbons for cancer. And there's no ribbon for anal cancer. You know, there's no, like no one talks about it. And I wonder, does that translate to nobody researches it and nobody makes progress in that realm because we are uncomfortable with it. So, and the, and all you have to do to make people comfortable about something is just start talking about it. Just own it, talk about it in public. You know, I remember when Bonk came out, my publicist saying, Mary, what are you going to do on the tour? Are you just going to stand in front of a hundred people and say words like clitoris, orgasm, Intercourse. I'm like, yes, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand in front of 100 strangers and talk about these things. And, and you know what? It's going to make people feel like they can raise their hand and ask a question. And it did. And I, so um, so I think it went from me just trying to find a topic that hadn't that had been put into a book and then kind of morphed into th- there are reasons why it's good to talk about these things we don't talk about. There's, there's good to be had from it.
1: And just to take it back to the beginning before we go, so I assume that you now get all kinds of crazy mail about the various topics of your book. People who've had personal experiences, sex, cadavers. Is that starting to happen with fuzz? Are you, do you hear from people either at events or otherwise that say, I have this human-animal conflict you need to hear about now?
2: A, a little bit. you know. I think less so because it's been almost entirely a virtual tour. And there, it's not the same, you know, when, when, when I would get these stories was always on the signing line where people felt that they, first of all, they weren't saying it for group consumption. They just would like to share it with you personally. So I got tons of those uh, for bonk. I got a lot of very interesting email, but um, so for this one, yes. Uh, anytime there's listener call-in shows, I hear people's stories and, yeah. And mostly they just want to tell the story. They're they're not even looking for a solution, which is good because it's kind of hard to, I, I don't have the answer for all the dozens of species in this country that are on the pest list. Uh, but, it, but it is interesting to hear people's own experiences. I, I like that part of putting a book out.
1: Just suggest egg addling for everything. <laughs>
2: yes. Egg addling. Oh God. I'm going to have to do a sequel. <laughs> just call it Egg. Egg is a good title, isn't it?
1: It is a good title.
2: Egg. Has anybody done a book called Egg? Probably a cookbook. Write it down. This could be it, Evan. (laughs) started here. And if so, now I have a tidy origin story. (laughs)
1: I'll back you up. Uh, Well, thank you so much for taking the time for this. Uh, It was really, really lovely to talk to you.
2: Oh, it was so fun. Is it been... We're done? Oh, How did they go by so fast? (laughs) That was really fun. Thank you so very much. Thank you. You're my favorite.
1: That's all for this week's show. I am Evan Ratliff, and that was Mary Roach. Her book is called Fuzz. You can find it absolutely everywhere that you can buy books. Our editor this week is Seth Kelly. Susan Peterson did our show notes. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our show is produced in partnership with Vox. And thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week.
0: Why do you run?